Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We've been talking a lot about the LGBT Title VII cases that have been working their way through the federal appellate courts and now SCOTUS. But on this episode, we're excited to drill down a bit and talk about what it's like to litigate LGBT employment discrimination cases at the ground level. First, I'm going to speak with transgender rights litigator Jillian T. Weiss about her workplace fairness work. Then I'm going to sit down with Larry Pearson and David Gottlieb of Wigdor LLP to talk about their LGBT employment, harassment, and retaliation cases against the novelist Nicholas Sparks and their case against Goldman Sachs. Let's dig in. I'm here with Jillian Weiss, a longtime transgender rights litigator, now practicing in LGBT workplace law at the law office of Jillian T. Weiss and serving as special co-counsel at the civil rights firm Outen and Golden at their LGBTQ practice group. Hi, Jillian. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. I'm great. I'm so glad to be sitting down with you post-Pride. Now we can, well, at least I can relax. I'm sure you were just saying you're in the middle of 30 cases right now. Yes, it's a busy time. So you're not relaxed? Um, I'm as relaxed as I can be. <laughs> I, I take a lot of, you know, do a lot of meditation and, you know, try to keep calm. That's important for attorneys. <laughs> We've got to get in the right mindset. So I'm excited to talk today because, you know, we've been talking on this podcast about Title VII cases in the appellate courts and at the Supreme Court, um, but you have a really unique perspective because you've been at the movement level and, and as an attorney in private practice. So before we dig in, can you talk about your career path, why you chose um, LGBT employment and workplace fairness as an important place to put your skills and talent? Mm. Well, um, I transitioned in 1998. I was 37 or 36. Um, and I lost my job as an attorney, and I then worked as a legal secretary for a couple of years. Um, and then I got tired of that, so I went back to school, and I got a PhD from Northeastern in law, policy, and society. Um, and the purpose of that was so I could teach. And while I was deciding on my dissertation topic, which could have been many, many things, but I always wanted to do it on something involving trans issues, um, I decided ultimately on workplace because I felt it was the number one issue for trans people. And um, also because I felt that at some point in the future, if I wanted to, it could be an issue that I could do some consulting on or some practice on. Um, and so, you know, I thought it was would be a good topic. And I did my dissertation on um, uh, transgender HR policies in U.S. corporations, of which there were 35 at the time. Now there's like thousands. Um, so it was really interesting. It was an analysis of where they were and who were the early adopters and why they did it and so on. Um, but uh, So I did teach for 12 years at Ramapo College of New Jersey, which was a wonderful experience. Loved the kids. Um, I published a bunch in law reviews and social science journals. Um, but I ultimately left that to uh, join the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund in New York City, um, which I did in 2016. And that just seemed like a super exciting place to be. I was like, this is our time. We're going to have President Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> oh, didn't we all think? <laughs> um, anyway, but uh, that was wonderful. Um, and so then I was there for, um, you know, about a year and a half or so. Um, and then I decided to move on to private practice. Um, I actually had started a practice in 2011 while I was still teaching um, because people were calling me and saying, can you help me? And I was saying, I'm sorry, I don't practice anymore. So at some point I thought, you know, well, let me try a case. You know, I mean... I, I've been writing about this, and, and now's my opportunity to actually try something. So I eventually um, did take a case, and that turned out to be the first case that the EEOC litigated on behalf of a trans person. So that was super interesting. Um, but that's how I got started. That's so great. And so I wonder if, you know, the Supreme Court case didn't happen in a vacuum. We hear about these appellate cases, um, and, you know, for folks who are listeners to this podcast, we know that we've been litigating cases all along the way in state courts with the EEOC. So from your, um, before we kind of get into a more on the ground level, from your experience stepping back, 
What has it been like to get to the point that we're at now, where the Supreme Court is getting ready to decide such an important, um, you know, transgender and uh, sexual orientation rights case? Um, how did we get to this point? What were the big touch points that we hit along the way from your experience? Well, it's a fascinating journey. I mean, since the Federal Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, um, there have been cases starting, I think, in the early 70s um, on the issue of protection of gay and transgender employees. I mean, it was so long ago we didn't even have the word transgender. That's how long ago it was. Um, and all of those cases were shot down. You know, And there were a number of them, and they're very, very interesting to look at right now. Um, but the first case that actually um, found in favor of a transgender employee, because that's the first, that was where we kind of got our entry, um, was in 2000 in the Northern District of Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the first time that it happened. Actually, the person who came up with this strategy based on Price Waterhouse was a lawyer named Dana Priesing, who was um, affiliated with Gender Pack, which okay. is an organization that doesn't exist anymore, but had done a lot of work back in the 90s, and um, I've lost touch with her. I don't really know, you know where she was at, but she really deserves credit for that. Um, and then, of course, um, Miranda Bernabe, who I'm in touch with, was the attorney who brought the case to the Sixth Circuit for the first time, and that was the first appeals court to rule in favor of a transgender plaintiff. And the theory, of course, was sex stereotyping. It wasn't that transgender people are protected. It was that, well, this is a man who is you know, being dismissed or disciplined because they don't fit the, the employer's image of a man. But of course, we know that really wasn't a man, that was a transgender woman, but that was our entry point. Um, yeah. And then, of course, um, you know, that got refined through various, I mean, the 11th Circuit with um, Glenn versus Brumby, yeah. um, uh, which actually started, you know, in the, uh, I guess, 2008, 2009 was the first right. decisions in the Northern District of Georgia. Um, and then there was a, a decision in the 11th Circuit, and then came uh, Macy, the Macy case um, in the EEOC. Right. Um, and what's really amazing about the, the Macy case is that when you read that opinion by the EEOC, it so clearly lays out the, the way to understand this, not only in terms of sex stereotyping, but as um, sex discrimination per se. Yeah. Um, and of course, it was specifically dealing with the transgender issue, but the EOC then later issued opinions with regard to sexual orientation that followed a very similar path. I mean, you, the reasoning is different. With the transgender person, I you know kind of laid out what the sex stereotyping thing was mm -hmm. in terms of gay plaintiffs. I mean, the issue really is that they're being dismissed because of the sex of their partner. Right. So as former Commissioner High Feldblum used to put it, um, in those cases, there's sex on the brain, and whenever there's sex <laughs> on the brain, you know, that yeah. means that, you know, sex discrimination is involved. And so, you know, that was really kind of a fascinating development. And I think the most recent cases that we see in front of the Supreme Court, certainly the um, two sexual orientation cases, I mean, I think that the people who brought those cases realized that it was kind of an uphill right. climb, but, you know, felt that the time was right, and certainly in the Second Circuit, the time was right. The Eleventh right. Circuit, you know, not quite. And now we'll see if it, the time is right in the Supreme Court. Uh, the transgender case, um, Harris, um, out of the Sixth uh, Circuit, again. out of the Sixth yeah. Circuit again. Interestingly, and in that case, the Sixth Circuit found specifically on a per se discrimination theory, which is very good for transgender people because you no longer have to say, you know, I'm a person of my original gender who's not perceived right. correctly. You can just, you know... As you are right now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that they did was, which is not an issue before the Supreme Court, thankfully, was the um, RIFRA um, defense, Religious Freedom Restoration Act defense, um, which is, I think, quite a thorny issue, and we will see that again. Right. Um, but... You know, I, I think we're in a good position in the Supreme Court. The thing I want to say is I wrote a Law Review article in 2007 saying that I thought the Supreme Court would rule in favor of a transgender plaintiff, and the reason is that the conservative judicial philosophy of textualism, which is basically that we look at what the words are now. I mean, as championed by Justice Scalia in the on-call case, which specifically said, yeah, we're going to um, rule in favor of this plaintiff who alleged same-sex sexual harassment, even though that's kind of not what the statute was originally about, right. because, you know, the intent of legislators is not that important, and it's the principal evils that we're concerned with. rather. But, the, but some conservatives who want to avoid this result have now mutated 
right. their ideas into what's called original public meaning. And the, the prime example of this is Judge Ho's oh, uh, concurring decision in uh, Whitmer versus Phillips 66 out of the Fifth Circuit, just recently came out. Um, interestingly, the, the main decision was just ridiculous because it said she can't win because of a case involving sexual orientation. But she was a transgender plaintiff, so it involved gender identity, not sexual orientation. And they were like, well, but we're bound by this precedent, which doesn't really make sense. Anyway, um, but what Judge Ho said is, well, you know, it's not that um, we can't, you know, kind of add these other things, because otherwise he'd be in a lot of trouble if we couldn't um, look at, you know, that someone was dismissed based on their gender, like Ann Hopkins, who was too masculine for her employer, um, you know, or um, sexual harassment, which was added on, you know, well after the statute was passed, or other kinds of things that we've become used to. So what he said was, well, this original public meaning is what counts. And so we're not looking at intensive legislator, but we're looking at what could they have thought had they known what would have occurred later on that we could now attribute to them post hoc. And it just, like, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Wow. It's so crazy to hear you kind of give that timeline of just how conservative, uh, and uh, the conservative judges that ruled, for example, with Glimby Brumby, like, this was a very conservative panel, um, and this is a conservative line of thought about statutory interpretation, like you said, going back to Scalia. So it's weird to see Judge Ho, I don't know if it's weird, it's the kind of thing you would see out of a Trump judge, but now where the mainstream um, has just moved so far to the right in terms of the willingness to twist interpretation in order to be as extreme as possible um, and reach a result almost. Yes, and I'll tell you who I think is the prime exponent of that is yeah. Justice Gorsuch. Right. I think that he will not be in our favor on that. I think right. he has shown himself to be an ideologue and result-oriented, whereas... Justice Kavanaugh, who has split with him on a number of decisions over the past you know, few months, has right. shown himself to be much closer uh, adherent to precedent and so on, and I think Roberts will. Roberts, of course, I think is the key vote here, and I think we will sweep by. Wow. But keep our fingers crossed and don't jinx anything. There's no wood in this. Well, <laughs> we can knock on something, plexiglass. Um, so you mentioned religious discrimination, right? How much are you seeing... Um, you know, in these cases, a lot of uh, employers are saying, these are my religious beliefs, I'm sorry, I'm firing you, you know, because of my deeply held religious belief. Um, Rifra's not at, this, at the heart of this matter, but you're litigating these cases, you see that argument uh, come up a lot. How is it being used, and what are the arguments that you're using to kind of get around this new reality that we live in, where the First Amendment is weaponized against people? Well, interestingly, I have not seen it a lot. Um, you know, most of the cases that I get, I, I have cases all around the country, um, but, you know, I would say most of the cases that I get are situations where the employer is saying we are favorable towards LGBTQ people okay. um, and our policies in favor. But then managers, you know, do something different and the employers aren't swift on the uptake. They don't have good investigation policies. You know, they say, well... You know, other people said it didn't happen, so it's unsubstantiated, you know, not looking at documentary evidence and all the different things that they could look at. Um, so, you know, mostly it's where employers are saying, we don't want to discriminate. Right. So I did have one case um, a while back, um, which was very, very interesting, someone who worked for the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, ultimately that case did not go through to litigation. Uh, but that would have been a super interesting issue. So if anyone out there knows of any of these cases, I am raring to take them on. Because I think that, you know, what's very interesting is the argument is that, you know, RIFRA says that you can't burden uh, a, an employer uh, or a person, you know, based on government uh, laws and regulations, uh, you know, substantial burdens, this kind of thing. And then it has to be narrowly tailored. So the argument is that the Civil Rights Act is burdening people's, you know, rights. But in the race context, of course, that makes no sense. I mean, as we saw in the Hobby Lobby decision, you know, there was a concurring opinion, um, trying to remember whose it was, but it basically said that, you know, I mean, this would not apply, religious freedom issues would not apply to race discrimination because the state has compelling interest. Would that be true of LGBT discrimination? Mm, yeah, well, but I think that's the issue. Um, and I should note that it's RIFRA that is the issue, not the First Amendment. I don't think the First Amendment protects in this regard. Um, I did write a law review article on that a while back. 
Um, but I think RIFR is really the issue, and mm. I'd, I'd love to be involved with cases like that. So how... Um, you mentioned how few um, companies were supportive and had policies back when you initially started this work. Now you've got the Supreme Court and you've got that brief with 200 major corporations. So the work has really changed in some ways. Like you were saying, it's a factual argument that, that the employers are making versus like a deeply held conviction that they don't believe that trans people are protected under law or under their own policies. How important has that um policy work, like working with corporations, doing trainings, making sure they have uh, policies, making sure you're bringing these enforcement actions against these companies. How important is that to the path forward for protection? Well, I think that's been key. I mean, I yeah. think a lot of the adoption of policies was because of the um, uh, Corporate Equality Index, which originated with Grant Lukenville and then was taken over by HRC. And... Um, you know, that really, I think, kind of pointed the way for a lot of corporations to see, you know, how they could be an employer of choice. And I mean, this is actually what I found in my dissertation after interviewing many, many HR directors. They really were are doing this because there's a talent war and they want the best talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, young people don't want to work for a dinosaur. And a sure way to be seen as a dinosaur is to not value diversity and not have a diverse workforce. So, you know, I think that's kind of the motivation, but I don't really care what the motivation is as long as it's happening. Um, But I I think that, um, you know, it's become super important to companies to be on the right side of this. I mean, the prime example is a case I did against Sachs in, you know, 2015. um, And they made an argument that transgender person was not protected and they were excoriated in the press. Um, And, you know, that case was amicably resolved. I think I'm allowed to say that. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's a perfect example. Like, you know, if you really want to mess up your company in terms of public relations and public understanding of who you are, you know, make an argument like that. And you know what? I've not really seen it uh, since then. Um, and I think companies have been very, very careful to avoid that. Mm-hmm. So if you were advising um, a company that wanted to do, you know, whether you're in settlement or whether people reach out to you and say, we want the most trans-inclusive policies, practices, what are the best practices out there, what would you, do you do some of these trainings and do you advise all of these companies on things like this? Well, I have in the past. Uh, I'm yeah. not really currently doing that because I feel that it would be a conflict with my work as a litigator. Got it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's many, many examples of good policies out there and if you go to the HRC Corporate Equality Index, they kind of list what are the things that should be on there. And, you know, there's even more progressive things that you could have. One of the major issues, of course, is health insurance and what should that cover for trans employees. Mm -hmm. That could be a long discussion, so I won't get into it now. But, you know, um, my sense is that um, there's plenty of of good policies to find out there. But the problem is enforcement at the corporate level. Their investigators are not trained. They don't know how to do it. They don't want to criticize managers or get themselves in trouble, their employees of the company, and their primary duty is to their company, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of what, you know, stance of neutrality they may take. And so that's really where the issue lies. And companies that really want to be good on these issues need to work on uh, training people who are doing these investigations and in how to look for evidence of discrimination and to make sure that it is put right. Because pretty much in all the cases I've got, you know, companies call me after I file the complaint and they're like, we, we looked up your work, we think you're great, you know, we, we believe in that. But, you know, in this one case, we did everything we possibly could for this employee. We bent over backwards. They just were no good and they didn't da-da-da-da. And I say to them, you know, I have the same conversation with every, every employer because they don't think they're doing anything wrong. And right. they are. Wow. How hard is it, you know, people, trans people are living multiple um lives with multiple identities, right? So um, they, they can, people of color, they might have disability. Um, how hard is it to do employment work where, you know, the law likes to put people in buckets and sometimes discrimination is across a wide range of identities or falling into a particular class. What's it like to do employment litigation where it's difficult to pinpoint exactly the basis for the discrimination because it's so sweeping? Well, you know, I do think that as a litigator, it's important to be careful. I mean, there have been cases out there, the prime example of which is the DeGraff and Reed case, 
um, which you know Kimberly Crenshaw has talked about a lot, which is kind of you know part of what spawned all of her amazing work on intersectionality. If you bring a complaint that has six different bases for discrimination, it's confusing, and a jury is going to look at that and go like, okay, so you're discriminated against because you're gay and you're disabled and you are a person of color and you have a certain religion. It's like, well, no. I mean, you know. So in my cases, I think I always look for the issue of causation. Do I have a statement by somebody that mentions gender in some way? I mean, it doesn't have to be like, I'm firing you because you're gay or trans, but something where they start talking about someone's identity. I mean, I think that that's an important issue of, of causation. Um, and so, and then I look for witnesses who can corroborate that, or, or if there's something in writing. I mean, without that, I don't think you have a real good case. I mean, you can bring the case. I don't, you know, I, I think at the preliminary pleading stages, you can kind of raise it, but I think you're going to, the causation issue will sink you, and so I don't take cases unless I have some clear link to causation. So that allows me to choose which basis I'm going to bring it on. And in your history of doing movement work, and this type of work where you're in private practice, do you feel like, how different is the work of, you know, finding a plaintiff, um, educating the court, educating the employer, how do the goals um, line up and how are they different? I mean, in terms of impact litigation publicly versus privately? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's very interesting because in terms of impact litigation, you know, what matters is creating a moment of public education. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's public education for the judges and, right. and juries, as well as media and, and other people. So your impact is not only that you're going to get a precedent that's going to favor you know, your particular group, but that people are going to see that and realize that they can no longer operate in the old ways. Mm-hmm. So that's really the key thing. And so it kind of doesn't matter what form you're in. If you get a great ruling from the EEOC, you know that's a moment of public education. But in terms of private... As a private attorney, my job is to get some recompense for my clients who are suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, they are out of a job. They, they, it's very difficult for them to find a new one oftentimes. You know, sometimes in this environment, just being fired without a clear explanation um, means that it's very hard to get a new job. So, you know, my job is to get them some money. Um, and I would say that 99% of my cases settle. Partly because, you know, I've worked it up in such a way that there's really, you know, you could just connect the dots pretty easily. But I'm not looking to create public education that much. I'm looking to create private education. And there's nothing more educational than saying, pay me $250,000. That's pretty darn educational. It concentrates the mind wonderfully. So that's my goal, (laughs) is to make sure my clients get, um, you know, compensated for their losses, uh, you know, economic as well as non-economic. Um, and, you know, that's really what I'm doing. If I can create public education along the way, so much the better. Wow. So what, this issue really is one of, I remember when we were at Lambda Legal, it was the number one issue that people called about was employment discrimination. How big of an issue is this for the trans community? And then, I guess, I wonder, you know, you gave a very positive maybe optimistic spin on what could happen in the Supreme Court. What happens if we take a turn here and Title VII is no longer an option for folks and there's this narrative that like law does not protect trans people, period, federal law anyway. Um, does that put a chilling effect on you know, workers thinking they don't have a way to contact an attorney and say, help me, I think I've been discriminated against? Um, you know, what could happen if that's the reality? Well, first of all, I think the fact that this is in front of the Supreme Court, regardless of what happens, is going to raise the profile of, the profile of this immeasurably. Mm-hmm. And that is a key thing, because people don't realize that there's not protections right now. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Supreme Court rules against us, I think we then have to switch to state courts. Um, there are many protections in many states. Uh, we can create new protections in states. We can also use other statutes. I mean, for example, with regard to trans issues, Disability statutes have been applied to good effect. I know that's controversial. Some trans people don't want to be seen as having a disability. Others say, what's wrong with disability? You know, we should be, uh, you know, not have a negative connotation for disability. But be that as it may, you know, my feeling is any port in a storm. And if I have a client that needs that, I'm going to pursue it. Um, But, you know, I think that there will be avenues. Um, And and what I want to say also is I think that if we lose in the Supreme Court, 
there will be a huge backlash to that, and we will then pass the Equality Act in Congress. That's my thinking. And how does the landscape change if we pass, if and when, we pass the Equality Act, and all of a sudden our community is protected under every, um, you know, piece of the U.S. code? Like, how does your work change, um, and what does that mean for the movement? Well, I think it means I get a lot busier. <laughs> I mean, you need to hire some people. Yeah. Which uh, you just did, right? Which I just did. Yes. Uh, thank awesome. you. Yeah. No, I mean, the need is great. You know, I've only been, I've started this practice a year ago, and I've got 30 cases now. So, you know, it's gotten to the point where I do need someone to help me. So I'm very pleased that I, I found someone great. But, um, you know, there will be even more need. There's, there's need out there now. It's, yeah. That's really just a vehicle to channel it. Right now, the need gets channeled into our raw pain and suffering. Yeah. Um, you know, if we have a law that can channel that into the courts um, and provide compensation for people who are wronged and let employers know that they can't continue to do that, and not only employers, you know, housing and all these other areas, I think right. that would be a, a go a long way towards creating the equality that we've been seeking for so long. So this is a podcast for lawyers usually, or policy wonks. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have advice for, um, or what advice you might have for, number one, attorneys who listen to this podcast and say, you know, maybe they're allies, maybe they work for big um, in, in-house counsel, maybe they work for one of, in big law. What's your advice for how they can help, what they can do in terms of either taking affirmative steps to protect um, transgender people, LGBT people more broadly? Well, I, I think that there is a tremendous need out there. There also are tremendous requirements in terms of pro bono hours now that many bars are passing. So I think that attorneys should consider finding and taking a case involving discrimination of someone who's LGBTQ and taking it on. I mean, if it's an employment case, I'm always happy to give people insights on how to do it, send sample complaints or whatever I can do, um, you know, and it's... Frankly, it's not that hard. I mean, there are much more complicated areas of law. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that we have so many attorneys that want to help, but I think that they're prevented from doing it because it seems like, well, I take on a case myself. Like, how could I do that? Yeah, but at the same time, these people are drowning. Yeah. So how could you not take it? You right. know what I'm saying? And, you know, figure out how to do it. Uh, that's a big ask. You know, free time has got to be given up and so on and so forth. But... You want to help. This, I think that's the way to do it. Um, and, of course, you can always give money to, you know, Legal or Lambda Legal or one of these other places that are doing great work. You're doing great work in terms of the clinic that you put on and, you know, helping people in various ways. But there's so many lawyers in this country that could be doing just one case. Um, that would make a huge, huge difference. That's yeah. my feeling. We're willing to help refer some of these cases through the clinic that we get in the employment context. Out in Golden has been really good about partnering with us to try to you know, offer any kind of help that they can on the employment front. But if you're looking for one of these cases, they come along quite often. So, so um, how would they get in touch to find such a case well you can give us a call i have an email address um, and we'll refer it out um we have a lawyer referral network where people can um you know sign up to be a referral um, referring attorney and we'll bring in some intakes and send them out and if you want to take this case hop on it um cool they're they're available and now you're saying you're willing to get on the phone and help them absolutely (laughs) no i mean this this is a cause for me not just a business Right. Yeah. And so what about to lawyers who want to follow in your footsteps? Um, you want to, you know, maybe they're, they're trans, they're, or they just care about doing this full time. Um, what kind of advice would you give to them? If, they were, if, you, if you're hiring somebody, maybe, or they want to start their own firm, what would you say to them? Well, you know, my sense is that it's very frightening to people to try to take on cases themselves, particularly if they don't have, you know, long years of experience, or sometimes even if they do. The, the older we get, the more experience we have, the more we realize we don't want to get too far from our own coastlines. Right. Um, I certainly am careful about that. But, you know, there's a lot of resources out there to help. And, um, you know, also starting a practice where a lot of the work is contingency is also an issue because cash flow is an issue. But if you can keep yourself afloat for, you know, six months or so, I mean, these, I'm telling you, these cases settle if they're worked up correctly because, you know, the issues are are clear and there's so much of it out there. Um, So my feeling is that 
you know, you want to do it, like, just do it. I'm a big advocate of seat of the pants, and boy, my whole life has been that. Yeah. Um, it doesn't look very pretty as a result, but you know what? It's been very satisfying in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you seem to push yourself to do different types of things. Like, some people fall into, you know, you decided you wanted to teach, but a lot of people find comfort in, you know, I do this thing every single day. Do you have some driving force where it's like, I have to challenge myself or you go where there's a need or how is it that you keep, you know, changing what it is, um, not only that you do, but, you know, the way that you can serve? Well, I would say I'm a victim of circumstance, as are we all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I went into teaching because I thought I couldn't practice anymore as a lawyer, mm -hmm. you know, that no one would hire me as a trans person. Um, you know, certainly when I transitioned, I was very ambiguous looking. It was clear that I was transitioning. And particularly in the 90s, that was incredibly frightening for people. Um, so I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I, I did the legal secretary thing, which actually I didn't mind. The people were super nice from, to me. I was working for a big firm in the trust and estate department, and I, I didn't even tell them I was a lawyer. I just put the law firms down that I'd worked for and let them make their own assumptions. But, you know, that was great, but it got boring. Yeah. I'd always wanted to teach. That's actually what I wanted to do instead of law school, but my parents insisted on law school, which it turned out that I really loved, so that was good. But, um, so, yeah, then I was like, well, you know, how would I even teach? And someone was like, well, you need a PhD. And I was like, well, okay, that's the end of that because I have no money. And then someone said, well, if you get into a good PhD program, you don't need money yeah. because you get a free ride and they pay you yeah. to be a teaching assistant, which is exactly what happened. Right. So, you know, that was fortuitous. And then I, I left it only because I loved the teaching, but I was living up in kind of about an hour north of New York City. It was kind of hard to make friends up there. I just yeah. didn't relate to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, gee, I really, you know, how do I give up like a tenured full professorship? But then this thing came along with the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so perfect. So, you know, I went for it and I got it. And it was wonderful doing that work. Um, but, you know, when it was time to move on, I was like, well, what am I going to do now? I, I mean, I can't go somewhere and, like, I don't know, be an associate. I'm 57. <laughs> Not now I'm 58. You know, who's going to... So I, you know, just... I did try for a couple of jobs, which didn't um, turn out. And so I was like, okay, well, I know how to do this. So I'm just going to have to figure out how to eat and pay rent during that time. And so, so much of it is just about, yeah, circumstances, being flexible, you're changing um, values, what, what it is you want to do to be happy and finding work-life balance. Um, you know, you don't want to be in a particular area of the country practicing. That's a reality, right? Like, yeah, um, you have exactly. to listen to yourself. My feeling is there's a way to make it work. If you really want it to happen, it will happen. Mm -hmm. If you don't really want it to happen, it's not gonna. And I think that certain amount of confidence is required for that, but I think that's what living is about, is learning confidence. If, let's say we have as our final question, um, President Kamala Harris, and she taps you to, you know, be uh, the commissioner of the EEOC, or to be a, a federal district court judge, how, how would you take it, and how important is that? Would that be to have somebody who does these cases from the perspective of being transgender and doing this as a movement lawyer right from the start, would that make a big difference to the federal judiciary, to the EEOC, to have experiential and professional diversity uh, in that way? Well, I have to say I absolutely love what I'm doing now. It makes me happy every day. It's stressful, yeah. and I have my down moments, but this keeps me going every day, so I have no plans to change what I'm doing. <laughs> Um, but I do think it's super important to get people on the bench and into government who understand LGBTQ issues, particularly trans issues, you know, and, and we talk a lot about our concerns about black trans women. Many of, you know, there have been 20-something murders this year, and it's been that way for quite a long time. That is the product of marginalization, not being able to access employment, housing, you know, all these different kinds of things. And you know, unless people in government understand these things, that problem is not going to get solved just by complaining about it. So, and, and of course, the larger problem of LGBTQ discrimination. Mm -hmm. So we need those people to be in government in order for them 
to correctly analyze the problems and bring the correct solutions and mobilize the resources to make it happen. Well, Jillian, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'll definitely put your information up on the website so folks can contact you if they've experienced um, employment discrimination um, and for attorneys who may want a little bit of advice on how they might be able to bring these cases um, because there's just so much need. Um, thank you so much for your uh, work and for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. The Supreme Court is hearing three important workplace fairness cases next term, so we wanted to talk a bit about LGBT employment discrimination, harassment, and retaliation with some legal experts. I'm here at Wigdor LLP, one of the leading employment litigation firms in the country, and I'm sitting down with partners David Gottlieb and Lawrence Pearson to discuss these topics as they relate to two pretty high-profile cases that they're handling. Welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast, David and Larry. Great. Thanks for having us. Great. Great. Thanks a lot, Eric. So let's dig right into the facts of Benjamin v. Sparks. So I, like most people with taste, have never read a Nicholas Sparks novel, and now after I read your complaint, I can assure you I never will. And for listeners who don't know, Sparks wrote paperbacks like Message in a Bottle and The Notebook. Sparks is also the founder of a private Christian school. And Wigdor is representing Saul Benjamin, the former headmaster of the school, in a case alleging discrimination and retaliation for trying to recruit black students and for supporting a group of students who were facing anti-gay bullying. The suit alleges Sparks banned an LGBT club at the school, blamed your client for pursuing these, uh, as as Sparks puts it, an agenda that strives to make homosexuality open and accepted. We do have some pretty damning emails from Sparks resisting your client's attempt to make the school inclusive. Tell us about the case. Absolutely. The facts date back to 2013. So Mr. Benjamin was a person with a lot of educational experience, including at the executive level. He had been in the Clinton Department of Education. He's taught in places as far flung as Lebanon and Morocco and been the head of educational programs there. And he was recruited to come to the Epiphany School of Global Studies, which was a school founded by Nicholas Sparks, among other people, um, back in 2006. Nicholas Sparks wanted to bring in someone with a bit of a more cosmopolitan background, um, increase the school's academic um, uh, credibility, and at least outwardly to Mr. Benjamin, was interested in broadening the the, the perspective of the school and its its international bent. He was hired with the board fully knowing what he was about, what his beliefs were, and certainly he was very much in favor of uh, expressing the beauty of all religions and all people, and yes, you know, improving and expanding upon the school's diversity policies and recruitment, both for faculty and students. So he came in with that apparent mandate um, in August of 2013. And within a couple of months, uh, there was an ugly incident that some teachers became aware of among the students. Uh, A couple of female um, students in one of the, the lower classes of the upper school, the high school, came to teachers saying that they had had the term homocaust um, not Holocaust, but homocaust flung at them by some male upperclassmen, mm-hmm. some older boys. And they came to these teachers for obvious reasons um, about this. They were troubled by it, wanted to know what they could do, um, and had questions about gender identity um, and, and sexual orientation in general. These mm-hmm. teachers um, did have conversations with these students, Um, in private, just among themselves. Uh, And there was no officially sanctioned club or application to form such. However, given that schools are tight-knit communities, right, people keep close track about who's going where with whom and and, and, who was seen together, the rumor mill began to turn. And uh, Mr. Benjamin became aware that there had been these meetings. The teachers came to him and told him about this. And he called in those male students and explained to them how unacceptable their behavior was. The parents of these boys were aware of this. Some of them actually went to the meetings um, where where these boys were called in. 
And some of these parents took great exception to this, accused Mr. Benjamin of somehow challenging their religious beliefs or, or, or trying to force them to change their beliefs, mm-hmm. um, even though he was calling them impurely to express to them that this bullying was unacceptable. The, and Mr. Sparks actually describes it in one of his own emails as an inferno um, that raged out of control. Um, a, a lot of um, discussion on the subject of LGBT representation at the school uh, started taking place in the school community. There were incidents where a teacher, um, in a meeting with students, equated um, LGBT people to pedophiles and predators. And um, so there was a lot of controversy, to put it mildly, um, on this subject. And it was laid at the feet of Mr. Benjamin, somehow, that, that this was happening even though Mr. Benjamin, at one point, had two female students come to him saying that they wanted to engage in a protest. He prevailed upon them uh, using the, the words, words to the effect that this was a time for healing, not heroics, to not do that for now, and, and let's see if we can approach the problem another way. And, and he gave a talk to the student body about bullying and and addressed the subject of LGBT discrimination, anti-LGBT discrimination head on. Mm-hmm. So over the course of about a month, from October into November of 2013, uh-huh. until on November 19th of 2013, Mr. Benjamin was forced by the board of trustees, including Mr. Sparks himself, to essentially make a declaration of his religious beliefs. He had been confronted by the board about whether or not he believed in God, for instance, and was told that was a yes or no question. There are emails in the record in which Mr. Benjamin is faulted by Mr. Sparks for, quote-unquote, admitting agnosticism. On November 21st, Mr. Benjamin was called into a meeting and told that he was being fired from his position with Mr. Sparks' foundation and that he essentially had to resign on the spot right then. He couldn't consult an attorney. He couldn't take time to think about it. He couldn't leave the room or he would be fired by the board for cause. And that was his last day at the school. What about some of the emails that were uncovered? You know, I read, I read one where, um, in Sparks' words, uh, uh, your client was pursuing an agenda that strives to make homosexuality open and accepted. Well, yes. Um, I, I, I can't, I wasn't there. And I'm not going to speak to what is in Mr. Sparks's heart, um, but the emails alone, putting aside Mr. Sparks's testimony at deposition and other things, but the emails alone show that there was no effort on the part of the board, including Mr. Sparks, to push back on this clear discrimination by the school's customers, right? The parents and the students are the school's customers. And they, there was a clear desire that Mr. Benjamin be singled out and, and forced out of his job because of his perceived religious beliefs, including his acceptance and you know, having the temerity to advocate on behalf of LGBT students. Right. Mr. Benjamin had, was faulted, uh, among other things that I already described, for expanding the school's anti-discrimination policy to explicitly mention LGBT individuals. Yeah. And there is, in fact, an email, it may be the very one you're referring to, that uh, Mr. in which Mr. Sparks at length talks about what a mistake that was and how the board didn't want to do that, but Mr. Benjamin essentially told them that this was the best practice that they had to do, um, and even musing on whether or not the, the policy could be reversed. Great. So that brings us to another case that Wigdor is bringing against Goldman Sachs on behalf of your client, William Littleton, who alleges discrimination and retaliation on the basis of his sexual orientation. Littleton was a senior employee and claims he was excluded from phone calls because he sounded too gay, among other things. Tell us about the facts here. Sure. And again, thanks for having us on. Um, So, I mean, similar to the the case that Larry was just speaking about, A lot of these cases actually turn into um, not just the underlying discrimination cases, but a really a retaliation case as well. Um, And so that's what happened here. And 
Uh, our client, William Littleton, um, he joined Goldman Sachs in 2010. He was, um, by all estimations, a superstar there. Um, he became a vice president. Um, th that's several steps up from analyst. Um, within his first six years there, his reviews annually are... Um, are just absolutely outstanding. Not just not just the actual word outstanding, but the substantive remarks really refer to him as um, as a superstar, as somebody who was um, who the bank viewed as being a future leader at the bank. Um, but I shouldn't even say future leader. He was a leader at the bank. In particular, he was very active in Goldman's LGBT network, and he um, and William was on. Uh, headed up some of the, their subcommittees as well. Um, now, during this time, during his time there from 2010 all the way through to the end, um, he had been subjected to discrimination. And at times it was sporadic, and at times it was more prevalent. Um, and there were a variety of, of different instances. There was, um, there was a conference call that he was not permitted to join in on because the person running the call said he sounded too gay. Um, there were remarks about him missing work due to a pride parade, um, but in fact he had just taken a day off. Um, and there were, there were several, other, um, several other, other instances where he was treated differently because of his sexual orientation. And um, in June of 2018, he complained about this. He went to Human Resources. He um, complained to Human Resources that he thought he was being mistreated because of his sexual orientation. And he complained about some of the uh, things I just mentioned. And after eight years of, of being a rising star at the company, being one of the LGBT leaders, um, no, without any notice that there were any performance deficiencies or anything of that nature, he was fired just a couple of months after he complained. And so, um, and as I mentioned before, so that's what we see in a lot of these cases is that um, the underlying discrimination leads to a complaint and it's a combination of those two things that will very often result in somebody having to leave. What's it like to bring cases against such powerful players like Goldman Sachs, like uh, Nicholas Sparks, um, knowing that the plaintiffs in a lot of these cases uh, who experience discrimination are going to face a pretty high-profile um, uh, examination in the media and public discourse? People have varying, varying levels of willingness to go public. And I know that when I meet with clients, that is one of the things that we discuss in our first meeting. Um, are you willing to file litigation if necessary? Um, do you want to engage in settlement discussions um, if there's that opportunity? Um, because every person who comes forward makes that decision to, um, to confront their employer with legal wrongs that have been done, um, needs to know that there is the possibility of having to go forward and make your claims public. The approach that we take is going to reflect um, their desires, their goals. People may be more or less flexible on the solution that we help reach for them or a settlement that we reach, or which claims we press, right? Which which claims we even make, based upon what they are comfortable doing, how risk averse they are, and how much they would rather rather you know, avoid a, a public fight, you know, versus some people who very much want to go public um, and and want to set a high bar for any resolution, um, you know, in order for them to not have their their say and not declare what's been done to them. Well, and oftentimes there's a real possibility to change corporate culture uh, firm-wide, isn't that right? Change is usually incremental, but yes, absolutely. Um, you can absolutely change um, you know, personnel by revealing bad actors, and you can alert companies to policies and practices that are, shall we say, out of date or not in line with best practices, yes. And, and, and sometimes the changes come... Um, as a result of the litigation, for instance, um, if a company is facing certain types of discrimination cases, they may make more of an effort to, uh, to train employees and to emphasize their anti-discrimination policies and maybe change some policies. 
And so um, the anti-discrimination laws really ex expect that it, it's through all these individual cases that people bring that the laws will really be enforced. Um, but then there are also situations where an actual resolution of a case will involve actual changes to the company. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, um, an LGBTQ, LGBTQ discrimination case where part of the resolution was the company agreed to, um, to put in all of its locations transgender, uh, gender-neutral bathrooms. Um, and so things like that are possible as part of a, even as part of a private settlement. What advice would you give to the lawyers listening to this podcast who are thinking about their field, what they want to go into? Why is employment discrimination, harassment, you do uh, Title IX work in the school settings, why is uh, enforcement of non-discrimination laws and protections in these spaces of public life so important? To me, it's the flesh and blood nature of it, right? Um, everyone has work that they do, right? Um, and work is also the source of people's economic power in society, right? Uh, as well as their status in other ways. Um, so really from the very beginning of college, I would say, I was very interested in labor issues, um, which back then really started as interest in collective labor rights, union rights, things like that. Something that is, uh, has been neglected in our country for a while. Um, and attacked by the court, but yes. Yes, um, but, but maybe coming more into fashion. Um, and, and I think it's very much tied in with you know, uh, popular power in general. But that really did morph um, into an interest in employment law because of the real um, human nature of it. Right, and, and I can say as a plaintiff's attorney, um, I was on the defense side for quite some time, mm -hmm. but I've been a plaintiff's attorney now for nine years. And what I really love about it is the, um, of course, you know, having clients you know, be so happy when, when, when you know, they achieve their goals. Um, absolutely that, from a, a professional standpoint, it's pretty great to put a case together. Mm -hmm. do that detective work and that investigation and ferret out that information that you knew was out there that really helped, helped cinch your theory. Mm -hmm. yeah, and um, one thing I'll add to that, I mean, I, I always wanted to represent individuals. I wanted to be able to help people um, much more so than uh, just helping a company. And one thing to, I mean, keep in mind is if... Um, for a big defense firm, a big defense firm will represent a company. If that company's getting sued, um, that firm pretty much has to defend them in that case. Uh, so, so the defense firms don't really uh, quite so much have a choice over what cases to take. I always wanted to be on the side that I got to choose which cases I thought were worthwhile, which cases were meritorious, which cases involved issues I wanted to be a part of. And so on the plaintiff side, um, we have the opportunity to do that. When somebody comes to us with a case, we have the opportunity to really vet the case and, um, and really decide if it's something that we think is you know, worth our time and meritorious and something we want to put all of our resources behind. Right. Of course, it can be difficult to bring cases like this because of roadblocks that are put up by employers who want to close the courthouse door so that plaintiffs can seek access to justice. Can you talk a little bit about some of those barriers that you face in trying to bring employment discrimination cases? Um, one thing that companies are increasingly doing is requiring their employees to sign arbitration agreements. And so what that means is, um, and a lot of the listeners may know about this, but um, companies are permitted to require that their employees only pursue claims in a private confidential forum called arbitration. And while companies will say that arbitration is advantageous to both sides because it provides for a, for a quick resolution, um, they say things like that all the time. Really, keep it quiet. But really, really the reason they want it is one, it keeps things confidential. It keeps things out of the public eye. Um, and two, they don't have to worry about a jury. And uh, companies are, are very concerned about, about juries listening to these cases. So it's a combination of those two things. Um, and, and, and there's others as well. In arbitration, while the, 
Um, the substantive rights are the same. There's much less access to discovery. So um, as a plaintiff's lawyer, we have much less ability to get information that we can ultimately use to establish our client's claims if we're in arbitration rather than in court. So for many reasons, um, companies have increasingly required their employees to sign these arbitration agreements. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it's only through these individual cases that these laws are enforced. When they're done in a private and confidential setting, they lose a lot of that value. LGBT people live intersectional lives. They have often multiple marginalized identities. What's it like to try to bring these cases when um, the law tries to put things into buckets? And so proving discrimination can often be very difficult when there's intersectional discrimination happening. Do you find that to be difficult? Pardon me. I I wouldn't say it's difficult. I would say that it's... It definitely um, requires you to go into your toolbox as far as empathy and helping your clients articulate their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the case that um, an older employee in general who is experiencing discrimination because, oh, isn't it time to retire? And we'd like to bring in younger people who we feel are going to be so it's perceived or believed anyway, less rigid or you know, we can mold them more, things like that. That person's experience is different from the minority older woman, right? Who may, you know, to, to your point, you know, have, a, have multiple layers of perceptions and, and assumptions being imposed on her, mm-hmm. right? And disadvantages. And that's absolutely the case that we... Um, take that into account and mold um, our cases and the claims accordingly. You're right that, uh, and, and I'm, I'm reading into your question a little bit, that you're also right that we can encounter in, in cases that involve intersectional issues and overlapping discrimination, the accusation that we are, and again, you know, lawyers are very familiar with this kind of term, uh, just throwing things at the wall. Oh, this person falls into all these buckets, so we're going to assert all of it. Mm-hmm. But it really is true that um, these issues are, are intertwined, that a single comment made to somebody can encompass a host of different biases and, and preconceptions. Um, we have a case that uh, I won't go into detail uh, in, in which one of our clients a highly experienced advertising employee was called a a tough girl in a certain tone by her supervisor. On the page, it may seem innocuous, even a compliment, but in that context, this was a minority, older woman. Um, It was infantilizing, condescending, and uh, and she absolutely 100% perceived a reference also to her her race and her socioeconomic upbringing with that. Okay, so let's talk about what could happen at the Supreme Court. Let's say um, the Supreme Court looks at these Title VII cases and says, you know what, Congress wasn't thinking about this when they passed Title VII at the time, so you know what, tough luck. Um, Your firm does employment non-discrimination cases. You do uh, Title IX cases in school harassment and discrimination settings. Um, which, you know, federal courts look at Title VII um, and the way the Supreme Court uh, interprets Title VII in order to interpret Title IX and a bunch of other federal statutes. So what happens to your work and the climate if we get a bad ruling from the Supreme Court? Well, I, th- I think it's important to, um, to understand that um, federal law, Title VII, which is at issue in the Supreme Court cases, is not the only anti-discrimination law that we use or that lawyers around the country use um, in some places. So New York, thankfully, we are in a place where there is state and, in fact, city law that protects against discrimination um, far greater than Title VII does. So while we, we assert Title VII claims, we don't need them, and the state and local laws are far more protective. Like in Goldman, the Goldman Sachs cases, like, state claims. Like in the Goldman Sachs claim, while we will bring a Title VII um, claim, 
the we don't we we do not need to, and we have not to this point. We've only asserted state and city law claims. Um, so thankfully, regardless of what happens with the, the the Supreme Court, people in New York, particularly in New York City, will still have this protection. Um, that is not the case around the country. There are many states that do not have any state anti-discrimination law, and the only law on the books in those states is the federal law. So in those, in those states, if the Supreme Court decides that Title VII does not cover sexual orientation um, or gender identity and, and other categories, um, in those states it will be legal for employers to terminate people because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, not to hire people because of their uh, of those things. And, um, and so that's, I mean, that's a really serious problem. Um, there has been, there have been several attempts by Congress to pass a separate law that expressly prohibits discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. And, and Congress has failed in passing that law for the last 20 years or so. So um, it will, if the Supreme Court decides this case uh, in the wrong way, then there will be millions of people who, around the country, who do not have protection in the workplace. Yeah, um, I, I think that something, Eric, that you mentioned in, in your question is, is the real danger. It, it could be that the Supreme Court um, issues a, a narrow ruling saying, we just don't think that the, the language of the law um, merits this supposedly expansive application of the term sex, right? Because that's what Title VII does. It prohibits discrimination based upon sex and employment. Um, the real danger is that it does go more into it should only protect what Congress supposedly had in mind at the time, right? Yeah. Because that tries to freeze... Title VII into a hypothetical 1964 mindset, right? Um, and that is something that, ironically, the Supreme Court has already rejected. Um, the Ancali case from the 1990s, um, the case that recognized same-sex sexual harassment as actionable. Um, a Scalian opinion. Took the words out of my mouth. A, a unanimous Scalia opinion. Um, recognized that it is not about <clears throat> what Congress foresaw or what scenarios it pictured when it passed this law. Mm -hmm. It was, in true Scalia fashion, and you know, one would hope that the court would be consistent in this way, choose an approach and stick to it, about the law's language. And if the plain language of the statute, discrimination based upon sex, leads you to other applications, then so be it. If the world changes, if society changes, if people um, you know, become more and more brave about stepping forward, about the law protecting them, and the law says what it does, then it should be applied that way. Um, so the real danger to me is the Supreme Court picking and choosing its statutory interpretation approach and saying, no, 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 no. When Congress added sex at the last minute to the Civil Rights Act, it surely could not have been thinking of application to, to gay men, to transgender individuals. I mean, surely, right? When the Supreme Court has already recognized in multiple situations applications that it's very unlikely Congress had in mind, such as sexual harassment in general. Yeah. So you do uh, sexual harassment and discrimination cases representing survivors of sexual assault on discrimination. What's it like to do this kind of work in the era of the Me Too movement, um, where it's increasingly um, the case that folks are coming forward and telling their stories and bringing these type of cases? Yeah, well, th I mean, this has been a really... Um gratifying period in which to be doing this work because um, due to the Me Too movement and other, other, other external forces as well, um, people have been coming forward with claims that they likely never would, that like, likely never would have come forward before. Um, and 
um, people think of Me Too, of course, as focusing on uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and things like that. Um, but there have been ripple effects in other forms of discrimination. So more people are coming forward with claims of race discrimination, pregnancy discrimination, uh, age discrimination. People um, across all different protected categories, I think, are feeling more emboldened and more courageous to come forward with their experiences than ever before. Um, so it's really, uh, a re for, that, for those reasons, it's really gratifying to be working in this field at this time. Yeah, uh, you know, just you know, thinking back again to my my early interest in, in the area, I remember reading you know the business section and seeing you know some huge strike against national companies, you know, and, and wondering why isn't this on the front page? This is a huge story. People need to know about this. This has to do with their everyday rights. And now, and I hope the moment lasts. I hope it lasts a very long time. Um, we're really seeing that, where these cases are ending up on the front page, right? And, and so it is, it is wonderful in that way. And I think that um, one of the best benefits of it is that people, you know, like David was saying, are being more, they're, they're educated about these issues. They, they know what it is going to look like, to, you know, to, to something we were talking about earlier. And so it's less scary to come forward because they see, you know what, people come forward and life goes on. You know, their, their career continues. Their life and social life and family life continues, right? And you also do see a change as well, I think, in some of the pushback on these claims, both in the media and in litigation. One of the most specific examples I could give is we hear a lot less often, David can tell us if he, if he agrees, I hear a lot less often, why did this person wait so long to come forward? Why are they complaining now? Oh, isn't it so convenient that now you're complaining, now that you were fired, or you're worried about that promotion or what have you? Because people get it. They understand how scary it is to make a retaliation claim, uh, rather, uh, make a discrimination claim and know that you're risking retaliation. So there, there are real, real shifts um, going on. In closing, if you were to give some practical advice to uh, law students or folks who want to practice in this area, what would it be? Get practical experience in law school. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that prepares you best for litigation, the rigors of it, the, uh, the knock-around nature of it, um, is getting out there and seeking, um, ex uh, seeking opportunities in law school to advocate, right? Advocate. Um, and write, and uh, you know, so take advantage of those clinics in law school. Yeah, and I would just add, um, it is hard work, uh, the work that we do. Larry mentioned that a moment ago. So anybody who's preparing to go um, into the litigation field that wants to do it the right way um, needs to be prepared to really buckle down. It's hard work, not just your first few years as an associate. It's always hard work. Um, but it is, um, like we've both mentioned, it is extremely, extremely gratifying and it makes, uh, it makes all those hours a lot easier. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, David and Larry. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in just a few days with the LGBT Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast, where I'll be talking with Art Leonard about all of the goings-on in the last month. And even though it was Pride, uh, there was a lot happening in the federal courts, too. Uh, not just in the streets, but in the courts. So we'll have all the latest for you.